Well, good morning. It's great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we'll be looking at a portion of Scripture there today. I don't think I have to convince anybody in here that we live in a broken world. Uh, A broken world where families struggle. We see it everywhere. We see it in our literature. We see it in our jokes. We see it in our songs. Here's just a couple here that brings out this truth of the struggles we have in family and in marriage. One guy said, when I got married, I was looking for an ideal. Then it became an ordeal. Now I want a new deal. Which is always humorous from a distance, but never up close, right? So, the old Gordon Lightfoot lament song, the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back. Perhaps you've seen this bride. She says, it's just going to be me. The groom was ruining everything. (laughs) We probably need to talk to her a little bit about what marriage entails can't quite do it alone, that becomes an issue. I don't know if you've seen this couple. They uh, had traveled over to the Holy Land, and um, while they were there, uh, this is just a story, so don't go, oh, ah, kind of thing, okay. While they were there, she passed away. And so the undertaker there in, in, in Israel came up to the man and said, I got a great deal for you. For 500 bucks, we can bury your wife right here in the Holy Land. That's it. Done. It's going to cost you $10,000, $20,000 to ship the body back home. And without even flinching, the guy said right away, we're shipping her home. The undertaker said, no, 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 no. You didn't, you didn't hear me very clearly. Holy Land. Buried in the Holy Land, 500 bucks. $15,000 to ship the body home and have it back there. We're shipping the body home. I said, okay, but I got to ask you, what in the world are you thinking? Gentleman said, while we've been here in the Holy Land, I heard this story about a man who lived 2,000 years ago who died, buried, and came back to life, and I can't take any chances. So, anyway, <laughs> what we um, what we find, on a more serious note, though, is there's all kinds of internal challenges and struggles to our families and marriages, aren't there? We, we, we do joke about it, but all you got to do is look at your own. Go like, yeah, right? We all have issues. And, and it's not just that the institution struggles from within. We now live in a world that opposes it from without. And, and so you, you try to redefine things. I was um, reading a blog on the Huffington Post uh, two weeks ago. 
And um, I, I couldn't, I really, I have to tell you, I couldn't believe it. Because I, 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 I really, I thought like, no, no, she's not saying this, but she was saying it. So I was like, okay. Do, do you know the term polyamorous? Do you know, do you know that term, many loves? It, it, it's typically comes from a culture that doesn't even want to use the word polygamy anymore. You know why? Gami comes from gamos, which means married, the marital union. And, and polygamy just means you, you have more than one, you have one husband and several wives or vice versa, okay? There's more than two in, in this match. But in this movement, they don't even want to use the word polygamy because that is too institutional. That's too traditional. So we will talk about many loves. So in the article, I'm reading it, and she says, it's wonderful. I'm married, and I also have a boyfriend. And I love them both the same, and it's a wonderful... And she's reading this blog, and I'm thinking, this is, this is a joke, right? And it's not. It wasn't. It wasn't a joke. And so the, the whole idea that you would talk about marriage as God's only intention for family, a man and a woman for a lifetime together, is now being attacked from the outside as saying, it's too restrictive. Throw, throw out the... Monogamy stuff. Let's talk about polyamorous. That's the world in which we live, folks. And many other things we could say. The, the most important thing, well, it's where it starts. It's not only that you believe the truth about marriage. It's that you live it. Because our greatest apologetic to a world which doesn't know these things anymore, will not be merely to argue with them, but to show them. We have to show and tell, not merely just tell. And what I want to do over the next four weeks is I want to look at marriage and family in light of what we call the Bible storyline. And you can run this with a lot of themes in Scripture. We're going to run it just with marriage. And so today, we're going to look at the way things were. What, what was God's intention from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2? The way things were. But as you know, things didn't stop there, did they? So we're going to move over to the way things are. What has happened to marriage because we live in a sin-cursed world? We've got to be realists. And then... Week three, the way things can be. What does it mean for Christ to come into a life and transform that life so that they can begin to live out God's intention for them and be a light to the world around them in their marriages and families? And then the last week, the way things will be. And this one's going to be a little bit of a strange one, I suppose, because there is no marriage in heaven. So how does that reality shape what we do today? Do you see? So today, the way things were, what was God's design for marriage? Next week, the way things are because of sin, the way things can be because of Christ, the way things will be in the new heaven and the new earth. That's a lot to do, and we're all going to do it in four weeks, okay? And then we're going to shift gears. James is going to do several weeks on family dynamics and issues related to community communication and conflict resolution, great stuff. And then Tim's going to come the last few weeks 
and focus on the whole issue of parenting. I mean, really dive into parenting. So we want to kind of hit it at, at every angle. So that's where we're going over the next 10 weeks, all right? And who knows, with us, we can sometimes expand these things. So who knows what will happen with that whole thing. So if you have your Bibles, come back to Genesis chapter 2. And again, let's, uh, let's just pray for God's blessing to open our eyes as we look into his word. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go to a book on sociology or psychology or anthropology to try to figure out where in the world did family and marriage come from. You were the one that invented it from the very start. You know it inside and out because you're the creator God. And so, Lord, as we look at a familiar story again, I pray that you will take the truth of your word and, Father, do a work in our families, in our marriages that go beyond anything that we can possibly imagine or think. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So today, the way things were. Genesis chapter 2 starts with a problem when you get to verse 18. Familiar passage. And do you remember um, at the end of each day of creation in Genesis 1, the Bible says, and it was what? Good. You right? So there's a cadence all the way through Genesis 1. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. The first time in Scripture when you read that something is not good is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Look at how it starts. The Lord God said, it is not good. Isn't that interesting? Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you mean in a world where sin has not yet entered that there is something that is not good? Adam has perfect fellowship with God. I, I mean, don't, don't you love the day when we will bask in his presence and there'll be this direct, all the time, constant back and forth? Ugh, it'd be great, right? Adam had that, and yet in God's design, God had more, and therefore it was not good. Something was not good. Well, wasn't, what wasn't good? Oh, by the way, don't worry about doing, taking notes or anything. You've got, I, I put notes in your bulletin, so if you want to, and there's no fill in the blank, so you can just enjoy yourself and read it later, okay? So it's, it's kind of all there in different format, but if you want that, that's there. Just don't let it get in the way. Um, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. No, 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 follow me here. God knows it. Adam needs to come to realize it. God looks at him and says, you know what? This guy will never be complete unless he has a woman in his life. He, he, needs, he needs the other side. What he doesn't need is somebody like him. He needs someone that can help him who is opposite him. The way I often explain it, if, if you look up here, if this is a straight line, okay, and here, here's a little angle. Remember the acute angles, math days, and, and the other one, obtuse? Now, you can pick and choose who's what. I don't care. But God brings an acute together with an obtuse to form a whole. 
And God looks at Adam. Adam has not sinned yet, has perfect fellowship with God, and God says he needs to be complete, and to be complete, he needs a woman. And so God sends him on the zoology lesson. Look at what he does. Verse 19. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. You see what God's doing? So he's on this lesson, and he's going like, cow. Ah, male cow, female cow. Ah, male horse, female horse. Male chicken, female chicken. And, you know, I mean, just going on and on. And he gets to the end and he says, there is nothing that is my counterpart. There is nothing to complete me that's different from me, but will complete me, but is like me. I don't have like a, I don't have the female. God says, you got it, pal. I'm going to put you to sleep and do some major surgery. And that's exactly what happens in the text. Look at what it says. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Gentlemen. This is the first time, verse 23, that the guy speaks in the Bible. And in Hebrew, it's poetic. It's just, it's, and, and, and I mean, if I could paraphrase the way I often paraphrase this, he, the man says, wow, she's mine. But it says a little bit more than that. Look at what he says. This is now, that's my translation, but you could almost put the word at last. You could actually say this, at last. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's taken out of my rib. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. For she she was taken out of the man. And then in verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's where marriage began. Where God, who actually gave away the first bride, brought this woman to this man so that an acute could have an obtuse or an obtuse and acute, whichever way you want to say it. But that together they can be complete. I've often said this. um, The last thing I need in my marriage is somebody that's similar to me. It's a scary thought, actually. And, and um, my wife's not here today, so I'll say this. And I won't have to worry about embarrassing her. Um, but when I got married, I have to tell you, uh, I don't think I had much of a clue of what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, don't you kind of feel that when you look back now? You're like, wow. I, and and I, I just had one prayer I always made to God as, as a young college student. God... Give me what I need, not what I want. Because I don't know that I know the difference. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that, was, that was like my ongoing prayer. I prayed all the time as a college student. And God, in his grace, gave me Sherry. But Sherry is not like me. 
I mean, I, I tend to be a schedule guy to the hilt where I'm, when I, if I'm doing something, I schedule out my whole day, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there, dead, 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 try to work the whole thing out. If we go to a party, man, I'm at the party, I want to know when it's going to begin, when it's going to end, about halfway through, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to do next. I, look, I'm not saying that's right, I'm just saying it is. My wife comes to a party, and there is nothing else but people and party. And she is just lost in the moment and just embracing and loving, you know. And halfway through, I'm going, it's 10 o'clock. <laughs> I got to go to bed. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and what, I didn't, what I didn't realize is as an acute angle, I desperately needed somebody who could compliment me. And we've been at it for over 30 years. And, you know, there's always kind of a pushback, isn't there? You know, it's just kind of the way it works. But, but God has used her in incredible ways. I'll come home and I'll explain something sometime. And I'll say, this guy said this and that. And I said this. And they did, they did, they did, at school and at work. And this, they did, they did, the whole thing. And my wife will say, yeah, but did you think about blank? Never even thought about it. Never considered it for a second. That's why I need her. And it goes both ways. Gals, you need the guys the same way. So fair enough. And so God brings these two together so that they could complement one another. So together, hand in hand, they could go out into the world, they could procreate, and they could make a difference and represent God in the world for his glory. That was the purpose from the beginning. That's how it all started. And the other thing that's fascinating to me, and this is going to be really important next week, I'll just say it quickly here. The fact when the Bible says they were naked and they were not ashamed. You know what that means? Their physical relationship reflected their actual relationship. There were no bricks. There was no wall. There was nothing in this relationship. It was a total open relationship. What you saw is what you got. That's a pretty good design, isn't it? Bringing people together who can complement each other, hand in hand together, make a difference for God in this world. And in the process as they walk together, there's total openness and honesty between them. Man, I, like I'm all over that one. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but I skipped the verse. Did you notice that? I skipped verse 24. Moses is a preacher. And he can't help himself. He's gone along telling this story. He gets down to verse 23. Yeah, and the guy, man, speaks words of affirmation to his wife. He said, babe, I'm glad you're mine. I mean, basically, okay? Which is a pretty good thing for us to say to our, wa- our mates all the time anyway, to be honest with you, right? It's a really good thing. First words out of my mouth should be words of affirmation. Anyway, so, so, so God, he gets down to verse 23, and then he said this. And then what he does is he steps out of the story in verse 24. Did you notice that? Because then in verse 25, he's going to step back into the storyline and he's going to continue the story again. But Moses is a preacher and he's thinking about this point, I've got to make an application to the Jews. I mean, I'm writing five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Man, this is too good. So he steps out and verse 24 is an application of what he'd been talking about in the story to people living today. So, Moses, as you write this story, as God writes this story through you, what are some takeaways for us? If that's the way God designed it from the beginning, 
How should we then live? Do you see? Verse 24. And I want to just look at three things with you, and then I'll let you go. But they may take a little while to work through. No, no, we'll work this through. Here's the first one. Um, and this is, this is a very familiar verse, but, but, but try to hear it again afresh for the first time. Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. First thing he says is you've got to leave father and mother. Now what's interesting in the ancient world, you didn't often literally leave their home. Sometimes they would just kind of add on. And the family members would actually move right in there. You could be on the same estate, right? I think it's better not to do it that way, to be honest with you. But they did. What he means is this. Moses says, look, when you get married, there is nobody, the most important person in your life is God. Absolutely. But humanly speaking, there is nobody on earth more important than him, or if you're a woman, her, him, if you're a guy, her. I have to be clear on this anymore in our day, but you, you know what I'm saying? But there's nobody more important. There is nobody more important in my life than Sherry. Not even my kids. Because the central union is Doug and Sherry. And so leave father and mother. <laughs> I've often thought about this. Looking at my own marriage. Um, where it was really subtle for me, not so subtle for my wife, I think, sometimes, <laughs> is that I just kind of figured certain holidays, there's only one way to do them. And so when we got married, and we came to Christmas, the Finkbeiner Christmas, man, it went like that. And everybody just did it just like that because that's what makes Christmas Christmas. The Finkbeiner way. And Sherry's thinking, we didn't do it that way in the Brooks home. And it was tension our first year or two. I mean, I'd come to this, this thing and, and it, I mean, I knew she was the most important person in my life, but I was bringing the baggage of my own tradition and the way we did things right into the marriage. And I'd say, but babe, it's not Christmas if you don't do it this way. And she's saying, yeah, but I don't think it's Christmas unless you do it this way. And we were at an impasse. So what do you do? Well, sometimes you pick one of yours and you pick one of hers and you develop some brand new ones. And when it all gets this, this done, it's like, that's a new thing. It's mutation, whatever you want to call it. There it is. But there's all kinds of subtle ways that, that can happen. When I, when, I, when I do premarital counseling with young couples, I tell them again and again, when you get married and you have an issue, the first person you should call is not your mother. It's to sit down and try to wrestle it through with your mate. If you guys agree to call mother, fine. But don't start with mine. I love moms, okay? Don't call your father either. Work it out together. And Moses says, if this relationship is going to be what God wants it to be, your mate needs to know they're the most important person on earth. More than 
mom or dad, more than any of your kids, the best thing I can do for my children is to love their mother more than I love them. That's God's design. That brings security into the home. There's all kinds of things. And Moses says, man, I just can't help but tell you, but there must be a commitment to a priority relationship. You leave everything else. And humanly speaking, this one is the most important. Now, that doesn't mean that you go off into a corner and, you're, and you, you don't have anything to do with anybody. No way. God wants us to join hands and make a difference in the world together. Do you see? So, there's a commitment to a priority relationship. Secondly, there's a commitment to permanent companionship. And the two shall be united. I think I've maybe used this illustration with you before, but I, I am not very handy. I look out at a congregation with a lot of men that are really handy. I mean, Tim is really handy. I'm not. So if I have an issue, it's best for me to call Tim and say, hey, Tim, what do you think about blank? And then he can tell me because, like, I'm going to blow it and make it. You know what happens? When I try to fix something, I make it worse, and it's going to cost me more money in the long run. So I might as well just call somebody to start with. I, that's kind of my reason. However, I love super glue. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're going to put a little bit of that stuff on somewhere. You, 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 knock, you, knock, you knock something down on the ground, one of those things that's important to your wife where the head kind of falls off and you just kind of put a little bit of super glue and put the head back on and push, let it sit there a little bit and turn it. So, you know, it's right angle and it's pretty much as good as new. And if it's going to break again, it'll probably break somewhere else. And this text says when you get married, I want you to be so super glued together that nothing separates you. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. doesn't sexual infidelity break that bond when you read the New Testament? Yeah, I get that. I, I, I get that. But for so many families, they use all kinds of other excuses. Isn't that true? So I, I, I get that. There, there's reasons. But he says, I want, you, I want you to be glued together like this. It so concerns me when I see, I, I mean, I, I, I don't do tons of counseling. You know, I don't do as much as James, so I can only give you my impressions for the stuff I do do. I'm most concerned for couples staying together in the first few years of their marriage and right after the kids leave. Just because I've seen too many when the kids get old, older and they're ready to move out, the mom and dad who have invested their time in them and not in each other, when the kids are gone, guess what they have left? Nothing. And then he says, you know, you're a pain in the neck. You do all these things. And she says, well, and you never listen to me. And she's got her whole list, and he's got her whole list. And it's, it's stuff that's been building for years, and finally they've had it, and they're done. They're gone. And, and instead of saying, um, so long as we both shall live, they say, so long as we both shall love. And not until death do we part, but until divorce do we part. And, I mean, that's, that's what happens. 
And when you read through the Old Testament, you see this problem. Even Moses, who wrote this, when you get over to Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses, he's giving legislation for the nation. And here's one of his concerns. People are divorcing for all kinds of reasons. And it's, it's, it's not a good situation. And so he enacts something and basically says, look, if you leave her and you end up with her and then later you don't want her anymore, you can't go back to the first one. Why? Because he was being ideal with all that stuff? No. You know what? Moses was saying, stop. So you can't just say, I'll try her out for a little bit and I'll go back to her again. No. And so puts right into the law, stop. But it was never God's intention from the beginning. Which is why when you come to Matthew 19 and the Pharisees go back to Deuteronomy 24 to play with Jesus. And they say, see, Moses gave us these rules and they even misinterpret Deuteronomy 24. They blow it royal. And they, they, it's, just, it's all messed up. They're saying, Moses said you can let, let her go for all kinds of things. And some said, it was only sexual infidelity, and that was good. But others said, if she burns your toast, they had all kinds of things. And so they're saying, well, so what do you think? And Jesus says, you missed it. Deuteronomy 24 was given because your hearts are hard. And I'm trying to keep society from coming unraveled. But in the beginning, it was not so. Genesis 2, verse 24 is all about coming together and staying together for a lifetime regardless. You come to Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, 17. Malachi's really upset. He's writing his book and he says, look, we've got people who want to continue worshiping at the temple. as if their life doesn't matter at all. And what you had happening in Malachi is you had men who had made a commitment to a woman, and what's so fascinating in Malachi are all the terms used to describe marriage. The wife of your youth, your companion, your lifelong partner, a whole series of, of, of definitions of what that looks like. You've got Jewish men that are coming back into the land, as they're there, they're looking around and they're thinking, my wife is in her 50s. Baby, look at that girl. Now, she's not a Christian. She's not a Jew. But man, she's 25 and she's beautiful. You know what they were doing? See you later, alligator. And they were marrying. They were divorcing and marrying younger women that, were law, that weren't even part of the Jewish community. And, Malik, and then they were taking her and they were going up to the, to the temple and saying, oh, isn't it great that we can worship God together? And God says, I'll have none of it. You have broken covenant with me in that act. You don't care about me because she's not even a believer. And you have turned your back on the wife of your youth who has cared for you and been with you for a lifetime. And he says this really interesting thing in Malachi. 
And it's, there's a textual challenge. If you read the different translations, I get that. But I'll tell you what I think he's saying. He says, why did God make them one? And what Malachi is saying is, why did God design from the beginning, I, wa- I don't want to bring one man and five women. I want to bring one man and one woman together for, for a lifetime. Not just to share the bed together, but to share their lives together. And Malachi says, why did God make them one? You know what his answer is? So that we might have a godly seed. The best way to impact the next generation is to take a man and a woman who know Christ and bring them together for a committed relationship through thick and thin, working it out, struggling together, not allowing anything to stop this. And God says when that happens, it's the greatest context to raise up a godly seed. Children who can see reality and can see what God wants to do. So I read this passage and I think to myself, what if all of our marriages were that way? What if all of our mates knew, baby, you're the only one. It's you. Secondly, and I ain't going nowhere. I know it's terrible English. But I'm not going anywhere. I am here with you for good. Brings great security. And the last thing he says, oh, and, and, and um, I won't read it, but I, I, I think I may, maybe even read it here before, but I have a, a quote from um, a fellow by the name of McQuilkin, who great in Columbia Seminary and college. He, was, he did all kinds of wonderful things there. Toward the end, when he was getting older, they had all kinds of plans for him as the president to continue, and his wife became very, very sick, and he took a hiatus for a period of time. And he had several friends that said, just put her in a rest home, leave her be, visit her periodically. And McQuilkin said, no. And people said, oh, what a great sacrifice. And he said, it's no sacrifice. She has committed herself to me for a lifetime. Now I get to return the favor. And he cared for her till she died and then returned to full-time ministry. Folks, that should be the way our marriages are remembered and known where there is a commitment to a prior relationship, commitment to permanent companionship, and a commitment to comprehensive intimacy. Because he ends verse 24 by saying this, and they became one flesh. What was true of Adam and Eve actually, because she literally was taken from his rib, what was true of them actually should be true of us relationally. Should it not? I love this verse here in Ephesians 5. It just kind of blows me away whenever I read it. But it's the whole, it's the passage where where Paul is talking to husbands about being husbands. In the midst of it, he says this, says to the husband, "Um, you need to love your wife 
as Christ loved the church. And then he says this, when you love your wife, you're loving who? Yourself. I've often thought this. There is no other relationship on earth like that, folks. Do you realize that? So if I love Bobby, his brother in Christ, good man. When I love Bobby, guess who I'm loving? Bobby. I'm not loving Doug when I love Bobby. I'm, no, I'm loving Bobby. When I love anybody in here as a brother and sister in Christ, I am loving you. When I love Sherry, I am loving myself. That's what Paul says. Well, how, how can that be? It's because of this text. When you come together, you are brought together, and you, there is such a oneness between you. That when you love her, you're loving yourself. When she loves you, she's loving herself because you're this union that at every level is intimate. It's not just sexual. It is sexual. It's relational. It's spiritual. It's emotional. It's social. It's everything in in, in God's intent. And so Moses looks at this story and he says, look, this is God's design from the beginning. And this is what I want you to see as the takeaway. Leave everyone else. Stay. Stay. And in staying, get intimate in every way imaginable. Now, is that easy, folks? You know what happens? I'll tell you what happens in my marriage. Sure, and I probably, st- I mean, I thought I really knew her well. You, know, you knew her as well. How, how well does a 25-year-old know anything? So, I'm sorry. If you're 25, God bless you. But... I'm just speaking about Doug Finkbeiner, not you, not you. I'm, I'm just, I mean, as much as you can, you know, okay? I, I get it, and I shouldn't have said it like that, but whatever, okay, sorry. I, I love everybody in here who's under 25, okay? Anyway, we were probably about like this, you know? Um, and then as we started to work through issues, you kind of go through this dance, don't you? So an issue comes up. If you work it through appropriately, guess what happens to the relationship? You come like this. But the problem is when you come like this, guess what? Other issues surface. And so you either have to make the decision, are we going to work on this one too? Are we going to try to stay here? Or are we going to back it off? And marriages are constantly going back and forth doing those kinds of things. And this text says, by God's grace, take the risk. Take the risk. If you know Jesus Christ, take the risk. And you make this bond as intimate and as close as it can be. So here's a definition for me for a Christian marriage. See it there on your notes. A Christian marriage should be a priority commitment to intimate companionship between a man and a woman under the lordship of Christ for a lifetime. I mean, that, if you sit here today and you say, I know Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're married. That's what God wants for your marriage. Now, I know people listen to this and they say, yeah, 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 but I'm single. I've never been married. Well, this is good for you to hear as you can contemplate that in the future, isn't it? You say, no, 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 Doug, I've been married. I've been divorced. Didn't go so well. Or you say, I've been married, I've been divorced, 
I've been remarried. So what do I do? What I say is stay where you are and work on it from where you are. So if you're single, never been married, look at this stuff as you think about getting married one day to somebody. To help with that, Victor and I were talking, I don't know, last week, right? Something like that. There's a nice, really nice little book that we ordered. Where's Terry? Is Terry in here? Oh, he's in the nursery, okay. I think he ordered 15 copies. We're going to get this nice little book, and what I re- it's five questions to ask yourself before you get engaged. It's a wonderful little book to put in the hands of people that are thinking about getting engaged because there's all kinds of pressure after you're, getting, you're engaged. And it's a really, really nice. We're going to get them, and we're going to put them in the back, and you can have them for free. And when they're gone, we'll get more within reason. But, but it's a resource. So you say, I'm single. I've never been married. Okay, okay. Then let this stuff go deep into your soul as you prepare for that. You said, I'm in my second marriage. Well, then let's start making this a reality now in that marriage. So wherever you are, start there. And there's always hope. Because God is the God of all hope. We believe that. Okay. I want to close it off. We've gone a little bit longer than I normally do. Sorry about that. I want to close it off in a word of prayer. And I want to, for our prayer, I want to read to you a prayer that I virtually always read when I marry a couple for a wedding. And it's, it's not original with me. It's, it comes from Louis Evans. So as we go to prayer, this would be my prayer for you um, in your current marriage. And, and folks, the other thing I want to say is as, as we work through this series, because I know sometimes when you talk about this stuff, what about singles and all that? We haven't forgotten you, okay? There will be things we'll be saying to you too along the journey. But this is a prayer for those that are married. Let's pray. O God of love, you have established marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Thine was the plan, and only with thee can we work it out with joy. Thou hast said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Now our joys are doubled since the happiness of one is the happiness of the other. Our burdens now are halved. When we share them, we divide the load. Bless this husband. Bless him as provider of nourishment and clothing. Sustain him in all of the pressures of his labors for bread. May his strength be her protection, his character be her pride, and may he so live that she will find in him the haven for which the heart of a woman truly longs. Bless this loving wife. Give her tenderness that will will make her great, a deep sense of understanding, and a great faith in thee. Give her that inner beauty of soul that never fades, that eternal youth that is found in holding fast to the things that never age. Teach them that marriage is not merely living for each other. It is two joining hands to serve thee. Give them a great spiritual purpose in life. May they seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the other things shall be added unto them. May they not expect of each other the perfection that belongs alone to you. 
May they minimize each other's weaknesses, be swift to praise and magnify each other's strengths, and see each other through a lover's kind and patient eyes. Now make such assignments to them in thy will, as will develop their characters as they walk together. Give them enough tears to keep them tender, enough hurts to keep them humane, enough failure to keep their hands clenched tightly in thine, and enough success to encourage them in their walk with thee. May they never take each other's love for granted, but always experience that breathless wonder that exclaims, out of all this world you have chosen me. When life is done, may they be found then as now, hand in hand, still thanking thee for each other. May they serve thee happily, faithfully together, until at last one shall lay the other into your tender arms. This we ask through Jesus Christ, the great lover of our souls. Amen.